welcome to today's podcast, ladies and gentlemen. This is recorded here in Seoul in the studio of NK News on Thursday, the 5th of December 2019. And this is the second part of my interview with a special guest, a traveler from overseas who has had some unique and so far untold experiences uh, in North Korea. Welcome back for part two. Mysterious Traveller. Yes, thank you. Uh, just before I go on, I should mention to all of our leaders, uh, leaders, listeners, please have a look at our website, nkshop.org, for all of your Christmas gift ideas, including T-shirts, posters, postcards, calendars, nuclear missiles, etc. It's all there at nkshop.org. And if you use the code PODCAST at the checkout, you can get a $10 discount. So when we left off our last episode, our traveller had just been escorted under force to the airport, put on a plane and sent out of uh, North Korea. And this was back in May 2015. And the last word said to him by the KOTC official was, come back again real soon. And uh, today we're going to talk about his very soon uh, comeback, which was just a couple of months later. So how did you spend those couple of months? What did you do? Where did you go? Um, well, I I mean, like the like I said, the first month I was kind of just recovering because, you know, when you destroy your digestive system like that, it needs some time to recover. And I spent most of the first month doing that. And then I was trying to figure out how I could get back into North Korea to try to um, resolve this misunderstanding and yeah. uh, just clarify things. And so I just began the process of trying to enter back in through some different tour agencies. Okay. And so you're in China all of this time and you're approaching different tour companies and saying, hey, can you get me in? Uh, and one of the uh, the tour companies, which I, I won't mention by name, tried a, a couple of times to book you on uh, the tours and they said that we've got the, the visa for you, or at least we have visa approval for you from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, but uh, the next stage was uh, the KITC, and the KITC, the uh, Korea International Tourism uh, Company, would not uh, assign a guide to you, which meant that your tour could not go ahead, and so you couldn't go back. And so you were rebuffed a number of times uh, in this way. And then in the process of uh, wondering what to do next and, and cooling off, uh, a Chinese friend of yours said, why don't you go and check out this island that's in the Yalu River uh, between China and North Korea? And it's an island that foreigners are not normally allowed to go to, right? I think so, yeah. And tell us a bit about that island. You went there and, and, and hung around there for a bit. Yeah, it was kind of interesting. A, a friend took me out there. And, and when I went there, it was uh, it was really kind of just symbolic because as soon as you go on this island, as soon as you enter... It's an island, okay, in the middle of the river, and China's on one side and North Korea's on the other. And it's and really close, isn't it? Yeah, it's very, you could almost throw a baseball if you had a strong enough arm across the river. And right. and, um, and so when I went there, he just said, hey, rest, enjoy your time. Um, and so when I was there, when you enter, there's like a, a, f uh, a three meter word as soon as you enter and it says love. It says L-O-V-E and there's giant letters. That's what you enter into. There, there's these these love uh, letters, which, you know, as you hear this podcast, you know, I'm talking about my love for the people and the country and mm. um, Chairman Kim. And so that was symbolic. So I spent some time there just kind of reflecting on things that were happening. I was feeling better. And um, through through my, my three days there uh, of just thinking, um, I, I realized that this was a, a potential place that, uh, that I could get into North Korea from. And there's a series of events that maybe you might want to get into, but, you know, it's, it's pretty common in that area for people to use boats and, yeah. you know, they, they do little tours and stuff around that area. Okay. And so you've got the idea 
perhaps if I had a boat, I could make my way into North Korea. Yeah, I think anybody could, yeah. Right. And so uh, how did you go about getting a boat? So to back up a little bit with the story, you know, I realized that, you know, there's an important part of the story. When I was there, I was at the third time that I was actually trying to enter into the country, Mm. the legal, the right way. You know, it was rejected uh, again while I was on that that island. And that's when I realized that I needed to... um, figure out another way. And so right, I, you, you got a phone call from one of the tour companies and they said, look, I'm sorry, it's not going to work out. Right, exactly. And that was while you were on the island. Yeah. And, and so I went back to where I was living and I, I thought about it. And, uh, you know, I ended up just taking steps uh, of uh, figuring out how I could get a little boat to be able to cross over. Maybe it seems kind of naive and even stupid to some people, but it was really important for me in a matter of principle to go in there and solve this problem after going into North Korea, experiencing all that I have, had these intimate relationships, and here we are, it's a misunderstanding, and now it seems like I can't get in to try to resolve this issue. Um, And so this was my... this was my idea, I guess, uh, to, to cross in and try to resolve it this unconventional way. Um, so I ended up getting a getting a boat. Right, you, you bought a, a, an inflatable rubber dinghy. Right, exactly. With with a small outboard motor. Yeah, it had like a little tiny electric motor and and uh, it, it had little paddles on it. And so mm-hmm. when I went back to China, I just prepared uh, the best I could, and then I ended up going back to Dendong and really spent another three days there just being sure that I really want to do this because it's obviously pretty risky. I'm I'm crossing directly into North Korea onto a military base, really on purpose for the motive of of getting arrested, taking back to the capital and be able to try to resolve this issue. And I was doing it in a way that I was hoping it could be done secretly to where I could go in and actually come back to China without anybody knowing that was their original goal. Okay, so wait, we should probably unpack that a little bit because that's a pretty audacious plan that you uh, you just outlined there. So you, uh, you thought... Uh, I can't go back in the, the legal way. I can't go back in through a tour company. No one will let me into Pyongyang at the moment. So uh, the only way for me to get to Pyongyang to sort of set things right is uh, to, to cross the river illegally, get myself arrested deliberately, uh, and then surely they'll take me down to Pyongyang and, and there I, I will meet some, uh, some security people or, or some high-level functionaries and, uh, and we can set it all straight. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's the basics of it, yeah. Now, were you concerned about being put on trial and maybe receiving a sentence of uh, 10 to 15 years like uh, Matthew Miller was around uh, just a year earlier? I wasn't real concerned with that. I, I was hoping that they would hear me out and, and see the the misunderstanding mm-hmm. uh, from both sides. And, um, and yeah, I, I was hoping that that wouldn't be the case with me. Um, then with this boat, uh, late one night, you, uh, you inflated the boat, went down to, uh, was there a dock or, or a jetty or a pier, or was it just literally a, uh, kind of a, a stone? Yeah, it was just, it was just basically a stone, a stone seawall. Yeah, a stone seawall. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you, you lowered the boat into the water. Uh, you had with you all of your possessions. Yeah. Yeah. I had several suitcases cause I, you know, I just, I planned to be there for at least, you know, you know, a few weeks. And you had with you also some gifts to give to uh, local North Koreans. Yeah, I know. I know the Korean way. So I had a lot of gifts, uh, including the first one being that they uh, were going to be able to have this boat that yeah. I was going to be taken over. Right. And uh, and on this boat, you had um, stenciled the uh, the letters uh, for the Korean words for uh, peace, love and hope. Is that right? Uh, peace, love and mercy. Mercy. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Right. And what inspired you to do that? Well, the the boat kind of looks like a military style boat because it just happens to be the color of it. And it was just good quality. And so I, I wanted them to know that, you know, I'm not a part of the government or military. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a civilian who, um, you know, who has been in their country. And so I just wanted them to know that, you know, I was coming in peace. Okay. And so the, the date now, you, you're, uh, you're on the boat, you're going over and it, we're talking about uh, the date being the 12th of August, 2015. So yep. that's um, just a couple of days before uh, Liberation Day, the, the uh, 15th of August, which is always a, a big celebration. Uh, my previous guests, uh, Morton Travik and Mary Son Kim, were there in Pyongyang for the uh, the big performance of the Slovenian punk, uh, sorry, art rock band Leibach, which was going to happen on the 15th. So that was about to take place. You didn't know this, of course, and, and they didn't know you were coming over. Uh, and on the 14th, so just two days after you're crossing the river, uh, the big Ulchi Freedom Guardian exercises were due to kick off here in South Korea with the uh, Republic of Korea and United States armies together uh, doing a big military exercise that they do every summer. So that was going to happen just two days afterwards. Did you know that was happening? No, I, I didn't. I had no clue. Right. Okay. So you cross over on August 12th to a military base in North Korea by yourself, just you, uh, a rubber dinghy and, and two suitcases. And then what happened? Well, a lot of different things. So it was interesting because that was actually my mom's birthday mm. um, that that I that I crossed over in, and and I had no idea that those uh, military exercises were going to happen. And so, you know, I guess it would have been a lot more scary to think about doing what I was doing if I would have been aware of that. So that was my my ignorance. But after I crossed over, um, you know, I, I it was around three a.m. It was pitch black. It was mm. a no moon night. Um, and I, I didn't want to basically scare these people in the middle of the night on a military base. I would, I would probably be get shot and killed by any country if you show up like that on a right. military base. So after I had crossed over, tied up the boat, uh, I went off of the military base and I started walking towards the road east. Ah. Um, it's ironic because I don't even use my Twitter. And um, I, I took a, a, a picture um, just to kind of let my family know that I, I made it over there. Okay. They knew that I was going into North Korea. They knew that I went in and out all the time, but they didn't actually know that I was going in illegally. I just said, Hey, I'm going in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they, they knew that, uh, normally, normally I'll communicate with them. So I, it's funny, I, I was walking along in, in China on that side of, of the, of the world, the sun rises around 4am around that time of the year. So the sun was getting ready to rise up and it was really beautiful and, and just peaceful, uh, North Korea is just uh, a beautiful place to be. And I ended up just taking a picture mm-hmm. and posting it on Twitter. Right. Um, Which is and- so far your first and only tweet. Right. That's true. Uh, sorry, tweet, I think is the right term <laughs> uh, the young folks use. So now I have to, uh, to say to our listeners that I've looked at this photograph. Chad, uh, the boss of NK News, has looked at the photograph. And we've also had some uh, imagery specialists look at it. And so we can... Uh, we can verify uh, that this photograph was taken uh, from the North Korean side, looking back at the Chinese side, uh, at a t- and it was taken at a time when foreign tourists were not yet going into uh, that area of the country uh, and looking at it. So those of us, who, uh, who, those of you who are interested, can go to the uh, Twitter account "Friend of DPRK." That's all one word, "Friend of DPRK," and you can find that photograph there. So, uh, so you're walking along, the sun's coming up slowly, and um, eventually, of course, you meet some people and you get caught. 
Yeah, exactly. You know, North Korea is a very secure place. And so I, I passed a few people. I was eating actually a, a, a little dried fish at the time. And um, and in this area, no foreigner, even today, uh, there should be no foreigner. Mm. So that picture w- would be impossible to get unless you were in that exact location. And so I was walking along the road and a, a young man kind of popped out uh, of the woods and looking at me really bright eyed because he probably has never seen a foreigner before. And they're wondering, what is this person doing? Yeah. And um, and so Basically, we we waited on the side of the road because we knew we're both going to just wait for the military to kind of take over the situation. And, um, you know, at 4 a.m., everyone's headed to work on their bicycles. And so they were pretty shocked to see me and um, they helped them get the military there. And um, and so. Uh, yeah, yeah, they phoned it in basically, right? Somebody with a cell phone. Yeah, they had a phone. I think someone actually ended up going to the, the military base, which is probably just a few kilometers west from there. I wonder if there's a hotline, uh, you know, uh, call <laughs> if you see a foreigner. Um, that's interesting. Okay, so uh, you get picked up. The military comes to find you, and they take you back to base, and and that's when things get uh, completely out of your control. Right. Yeah. Now, now I have a lot of explaining to do, and so they took me that back to that base where my boat was and all my bags, and um, they they didn't have anybody that really uh, spoke good English at that base, so they kind of went up through the ranks of people uh, trying to uh, figure out what to do about the situation, and they ended up transferring me to a larger military base where I believe it was a tour guide they brought in who could speak uh, good English, and he came in and you know he he kind of started in a really nice way. We have to ask you some questions, and uh, so that's when it all kind of began, and and I was at. A, uh, a military base there. And so I answered a lot of their questions the best I could. Were you at that point uh, in handcuffs? I was not. I, I was not. They had me in handcuffs before I got there. But when mm-hmm. I got there, they took them off and, and they let me talk to them freely. And then they later handcuffed me again when they transferred me back to Sinuju. Mm. Okay. All right, so how long were you at uh, at the uh, the larger of the two military bases, um, I was just there, just there for the for the the part of the day, maybe half a day or so, and they were just kind of doing the initial the initial meeting, and so uh, they had a lot of questions, obviously yeah. why why I would have crossed in, and I think they were trying to figure out what to do about it. Okay, and that's when uh, they took you uh, to to Shiniju, to uh, the Amnok Hotel. Mm-hmm. which at that point, as I understand it, had never had foreign visitors in it, or at least not recently. Uh, it's only in the year after your um, detention there that uh, foreigners were allowed to go to the Amnok Hotel. Oh, really? Okay, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, they're, they're able to go there now, but yeah, they weren't when you were there. Hmm. So you were the uh, perhaps the only foreign guest, or at least the only non-Chinese foreign guest there at the time. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and, and that began a period of pretty intense questioning. Yeah, yeah, and intense is an understatement, but yeah, it, it, well, actually not quite at first. So the first day or two, it was just kind of, hey, we need to know why you did this. And um, they have you write kind of, you know, exactly what you've done prior in the country. This is when I write it. I think I wrote, you know, close to two or 300 pages, it seemed like. And so oh, I, that's your whole life story, is it? Uh, you started asking all these questions, uh, or they started asking all these questions that I needed to, to answer. And so at first, it was really cordial. It, it was it was nice. But because mm. of those military exercises, as soon as those started, uh. it changed everything. They told me that I was going to going to Pyongyang, the capital. And actually, they said, that I was going to uh, meet Kim Jong-un, which sounds crazy, but uh, I said that I wanted to, to meet him. And and uh, and they said, oh, well, you know, if, if you want to meet him, then we have to take you to him. So I don't know if that's really true or not, but uh, everything was really good in the beginning for the first day or two. Okay. And so then, yeah, so on the, as I mentioned, on the 14th of August, uh, Ulchi Freedom Guardian 
uh, exercises kicked off, which were quite big. And the, the North Koreans who were interrogating you, they saw that you were, or they believed that you were probably connected with this somehow. Right. Well, they they thought that it was it was interesting the timing. I'm crossing onto a military base, um, and I, I have like a boat that kind of looks like a military type boat. Mm-hmm. So it, it didn't look good, and so. Kim Jong-un basically sent all of these intelligence and, and military people uh, to me to, to do this uh, intense interrogation. And so it felt like it was kind of locked down in Sinuju and they had a lot of questions and, and I knew things got very serious mm. uh, at that point. I still remember them uh, being very angry with me. Yeah, I, I really, uh, I think, well, you're the first person I've talked to uh, in detail who's been through this kind of uh, a questioning. So I'd really like to go into a bit of detail there. So you said it was 18 hours a day um, of questions. Yeah, it was close to that, yeah. So tell us how that would go. How would that work? Were you were you strapped to a chair? Were you made to, to stand up in stress positions? Um, no, that's that's a good question. As soon as I arrived in Sinuju, they took off the handcuffs, and I was never in handcuffs again. And so um, I was very free there, and they were they treated me very well. And so when when these uh, officers arrived from Pyongyang, they obviously had a lot of questions, and it, it looked even worse because of the timing of it. And so um, I was as cooperative as I could, but they they. They document pretty much everything that you do when you're there. So they had a lot of questions that they had to sift through during my time uh, of living there. Um, so they asked you about the Rajan time, did they? Right, yeah. So they, they knew. Yeah, and there's there's specific things. Like I can give one quick funny story. When I was in Rajan one time, the battery to our truck died. And when, when it died, what do you do in most foreign countries if your battery dies? You just flag the next person down and ask if they give you a jump, right? Yeah. Well, when I was doing this, I, I, the car died, and uh, almost immediately I, I saw a truck in the in the mirror of my, my the vehicle I was driving, mm-hmm. and I hopped out in front of this this uh, this blacked out SUV, and I should have known better that trucks like that don't just drive around uh, North Korea. And I jumped out, and I, I stood in front of it, trying to flag it down to uh, give me a jump. Yeah. Well, this looked really bad because to them it looked like uh, something aggressive, and I ended up getting taken down to talk with the the high security officer there in Rajin and um, they were pretty upset. They were wondering, why did you do this? They were pretty angry. And I explained to them, you know, this is just what foreigners do. And I realized I made a mistake and I'm sorry. And it actually turned out to be a really good thing. We became friends. We laughed. And, uh, and was, he, was that truck that you flagged down? Was that a military truck? Of no, some no, sort? no. That was just a regular civilian truck, a, a truck we use for the farm. And no, um, I mean, the one that you. Yeah. When, when I was in Rajin, it was just a, 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 a truck that we used to haul stuff. And so. No, but not your truck, the truck that you flagged down. Oh, no, it wasn't a military truck. No, okay. it was uh, it, it wasn't a military truck. Okay, so so really, it, it didn't matter who it was you were flagging down. They just didn't like you flagging anybody down. Well, these ended up being just happened to be some some security officers. So it wasn't just random people. Ah. Um, and that's why they, they they were upset about it, I think. Okay. So right. I, I just I just say that, that there was a lot of things that happened in North Korea that they wanted to readdress. And so we're going through all of those things each ah. day. We're going through the history of where I came from, what I do, all of that stuff. And it's all reasonable stuff to ask. Right. So in Shinjiu, they brought up these incidents that had happened in uh, in Rajin and said, well, what about this? Tell us about that. And you, you would have to right, exactly. go through those details. So I'd go through it one day, everything yeah. would check out perfectly. And then the next day they'd say, okay, everything's true. And then, you know, they would follow up the next day with a lot more questions. And we were building trust and um, things were starting to sizzle down as they understood uh, more of the misunderstanding from Pyongyang and more of my background there and, and my love for the country and people and leader. What about threats and intimidation? Did they use any of them during your uh, your, your questioning? 
Well, I think sometimes, you know, when you're in an interrogation like that, that stuff is probably a part of trying to get what you want. And so um, there was a little bit of that, but uh, I had a good relationship with them. So we were always able to work through it. Okay. And so, uh, so for three weeks, then you went through this, uh, this process. And at the end of that, uh, how did that all finish up? You know, it, it slowly started to wrap up that they understood uh, my purpose for being there was to try to solve this problem from the misunderstanding. And so they're also asking stories uh, or uh, the story about that. And they're verifying uh, kind of what happened. And they're trying to figure out how to help me resolve that also. So are you still at that point asking to be taken to Pyongyang and to maybe have a meeting with somebody there? No, no, no. I'm not. I'm I'm not. I'm just asking to be able to clarify my side of the story. And they're just uh, they're just going through the information to to verify it. Right. OK. And so obviously they would have known what happened to you on the last day of your tour in uh, uh, in May of that year. So did you feel that you clarified that with them? Yeah, I mean, as things started to move forward, they investigated uh, not just my side, but they also investigated the other side to uh, to figure out what what went wrong. Mm-hmm. And so, as they did, they realized that you know it, it was a misunderstanding, and everything was uh, was solved. And the, the Kim Jong Un ended up sending uh, some type of political um, officer to me. Um, actually, uh, you know, he said he was really sorry that this happened and it shouldn't have happened. Um, you know, he asked me if I wanted this official. Uh, to come there. And I said, no, it's, it's okay. It was just a misunderstanding. And we had a really, a really good conversation. And they kind of uh, declared that uh, the uh, Marshal Kim Jong-un was going to release me and uh, that Kim Jong-un said that I was a peaceful man. So I was really thankful to Chairman Kim, because at that point, I, I thought that I was still going to be headed to Pyongyang, go to trial, and that I was really going to be punished harshly for, for what I did. Had you, uh, I know around that time, you wrote a second letter to uh, to Kim Jong Un, a thirteen page letter. Was that before or after the official came to see you? Um, that was kind of the around the start of when the uh, the officers came when the after the military exercises started. Um, you know, I I said that I wanted to write a letter directly to him and mm-hmm. and explain to him why. So yeah, it was a twelve or thirteen page letter where um, I was just expressing um, you know what happened and and uh, I was telling that I'm I'm really sorry for this and kind of the way I described it was you know there's a there's a written law, right? And and that written law shouldn't be broken. But I really believe that there's a there's a law of love that sometimes, uh, you know, you can break. If there's a burning building and there's a child inside, no one would think twice about going in to save that, that little child. They would just go in a house that's not theirs and, and they would save it. So I kind of work through things, practically speaking, to get them to understand why I did what I did. And mm-hmm. I think through that whole process, they understood uh, my heart and my motive behind the whole thing. Okay, so that's the kind of thing that you wrote in the letter. Yeah, I wrote a lot of other stuff just uh, about my love for the country, my love for the people, my love uh, for him directly. Yeah. And I asked for him to just uh, please consider to uh, be merciful to me and allow me to, uh, to leave in a peaceful and, and honorable way. Right. Now, there was a, a statement was read out at the end of your uh, three weeks of questioning by somebody in a military uniform. Tell us about that statement. Yeah, I mean, uh, it makes sense. You know, the decisions need to be made by the the top leader in the country. So it makes sense that they kind of have to say that someone else is stating this um, and not on their own accord. And so it was just done in a a little bit uh, of formal fashion of them saying uh, exactly what Kim Jong-un said, that he was... um, thought I was a peaceful man and that he was going to release me. And from that point, we thought that it was going to be really simple, that I'm going to go back to China. And, um, you know, uh, they they said that I'm welcome back there in the future. And so we thought that it was really going to be easy, but that, that wasn't the case. Right. It actually began uh, quite a long 
uh, waiting process because China was un- uh, was unwilling to receive you back so easily. Since you had left China without official notice, uh, they didn't want to have you back quickly, right? Right. Yeah. It, we, we thought I would be able to just go back to China um, easily. But because I left there illegally, China um, was reluctant to, to receive me back there because, mm. you know, it looked like, you know, who is this person? This is done in kind of an unprecedented way that you know, this American crossed over illegally. And now North Korea says, hey, you know, this guy's peaceful. We're going to let him come back. Um, and this is without any U.S. government intervention or the media didn't know about it. And I really wanted to keep things uh, quiet. That way we could just solve this problem um, in a peaceful way. And right. uh, China had to do basically their own big investigation that ended up extending my time twice as long past that three-week interrogation to end up being nine weeks total I was in the country until we solved the the issue of me being able to come back to China. Right. So six weeks of that was was, a, was just waiting a, a back and forth between North Korea and China to uh, to allow you back in. Yeah. And it was a really, really special time. Uh, of course, I, my favorite thing to do in North Korea is just actually be with the people. Um, it's a beautiful country, but just spending time with the people um, is, is really special to me. So we were able to, uh, you know, spend a lot of intimate time together. I don't think I've ever spent nine weeks with someone breakfast, lunch, and dinner like I did him. I was able to, you know, teach him some English and stuff like that. It was really, really a, a cool time. Right. I mean, you basically, yeah, as you said, you're with the same guy uh, every day, all day uh, for nine weeks under house arrest in the hotel. Yeah. Um, you're allowed some movement within the hotel, but not outside it. Right. Yeah. I mean, when we were, when we were there, there was actually a few other people that were also there with me, but there was a, a kind of a leader um, that we got really close and and I really look at him as a brother. And after we went through the whole interrogation, I mean, that's that's a long process and we built trust. Uh, that's kind of, you know, one of my main goals and uh, vision for my time there is uh, just kind of reconciling with, uh, like I said, the younger generation, trying to better understand each other, you know, just acknowledge the differences, but um, love each other uh, despite of them. Um, were, did they feed you well? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they fed me really well. Actually, you know, I didn't want to be a burden to North Korea. So I, I brought in some cash with me uh, to be able to make sure that I could pay for my own meals. Um, and so, yeah, they, they took care of me very well. Um, they fed me very well and, and they, they treated me very well. And what about uh, a, a room? Did you have your own room or did you have to share it with, uh, with you know, your minders? Um, our, our rooms were kind of connected. So I had my room and then uh, all the other um, officers had their room, but they were, they were interconnected with the same exit door. Okay. Now, um, during this time that you're in, this, uh, in North Korea, in nine weeks, uh, was the U.S. government aware that you were there? You know, of course, it's going to raise questions. I don't communicate with my family. And so they, they had notified the State Department. Um, and so they were aware, but they, they knew my desire ahead of time because I actually wrote my mom an email that uh, was kind of a delayed email after I entered in and uh, kind of talked about, you know, what they could do if they didn't hear from me. And so they contacted them. They told them, you know, the U.S. government, please don't intervene um, and, you know, do their best to try to keep me out of the media because uh, I didn't want there to be some kind of frenzy over all of it. And so um, that's what they did. And so they were they were aware that that I was there. And indeed, um, yeah, so far until today, you've not been in any North Korean, uh, Chinese, South Korean or American media. Right. And that's quite remarkable, right? Uh, that doesn't happen so often. Yeah, I. Uh, it, it's a really personal story. And I know it's a, a pretty extraordinary story. But 
uh, there's a lot of sensitivity revolving around all of it. And, um, you know, one of the uh, main motivating factors for me to, to share about my detainment, um, I think, is going to come later on in, in yeah. the podcast. And so that's why. But, but really, you know, I, I, I want to focus more on why I crossed in uh, to North Korea. You know, I, I risked my life uh, for love and love sometimes people say is crazy. Mm-hmm. So now NK News have been able to confirm uh, that uh, the State Department was aware that our guest was uh, was there in North Korea at the time uh, and that there have also been a few other cases of, uh, of U.S. nationals who were detained in North Korea and released without media fanfare. So uh, we are, uh, we've been, yeah, even though we can't release all the, uh, the photographs uh, and the names that we've been shown, we uh, can certainly tell that we verified many aspects of this story independently. Now, your, um, your final day there in North Korea before uh, being sent to, uh, to China, was it an emotional farewell at the hotel with the people you'd spent the last nine weeks with? Yeah, I mean, big time. It wasn't just, it didn't just happen once. There was numerous of times that I thought I was leaving. So it was like Ah. every three days, it was, we're going to do this way. And then it was do it this way because everybody wanted to make sure they, they, they had their side covered. And so it took some time for the Chinese side to agree, I think, with the North Korean side, how it was going to all happen. And so, um, you know, basically the way I understand it is they shut, shut down both sides of, of this bridge and, um, there was a, a political figure actually on the Chinese side uh, of the border and there was uh, video cameras and they documented the whole thing. And so um, I crossed over um, that bridge um, and uh, when I went over, the Chinese received me and immediately uh, gave me like uh, did a medical exam and, and all of this stuff. How did you cross the bridge? Did you go on foot or was it on a train? Yeah, I was just in a car. And so I was I was with the North Korean uh, military and, and intelligence uh, officers and they took me across. Now, so your, uh, your multiple farewells uh, actually reminds me of a song. Are you familiar with the American singer-songwriter Ben Falls? Um, I am not. Okay, well, he's got a song there called Stephen's Last Night in Town about a guy who keeps saying he's going to leave but then doesn't. And so they keep having these farewell <laughs> parties for him. And- That's exactly that's exactly what happened because we grew really close and so we thought we were saying goodbye very often so by the time I actually left we just had a humble soup uh, lunch and it was uh, it was a, a very simple uh, goodbye last night in Shiniju again and again and again yeah basically yeah and so there you, you found yourself in Dandong uh, in China and the Chinese had a surprise for you you've now got to spend some time in in, uh, in their uh, detention right I, I left Chinese ele- uh, China illegally so the Chinese had had a lot of questions too. So now is my turn to uh, talk to the Chinese uh, intelligence and military and police on what exactly happened. Uh, you know, why did I do this? How did I do this? And um, so, yeah, they were uh, they were very nice to me the whole time. But I think they were just very curious how I kind of just disappeared out of thin air from this uh, this hotel. Right. And, and so uh, you were now in a, in a Chinese hotel or is it actually a Chinese prison proper? So initially we, we went to the police department, I believe. And um, that's where, you know, there was probably 15 or 20 uh, people that uh, had a lot of questions for me. So that's kind of when it all started. Yeah. And, and but they uh, even though you were held in a cell, they treated you nicely. Yeah, they tre- they treated me very well. The warden of the prison uh, was initially the person who kind of received me there. And uh, I think they treated me uh, above and beyond uh, what what uh, I should have been. And so uh, I was treated really, really well there. And it sounds funny to say I enjoyed my time there, but um, I did. I, I, I made good friends with a lot of the 
you know, the prison guards and, and the warden uh, also. Can we say that your, uh, your good treatment there at the hands of the Chinese jailers was a result of uh, a white American privilege? I would, I would guess so. I think at that point, maybe the Chinese uh, didn't know exactly who I was and um, just knew I was from a foreign country. And so I would, I would guess that they, they wanted to just make sure, sure that they treated me well. Hmm. So uh, nine weeks. So you you, uh, you went in there in the uh, the middle of August, and that would place you would have come out sometime around uh, mid to late October. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That's that's. I'm not sure exactly when it was, but around October 20th or or something like that. But it was that time in the, in in the Chinese uh, prison was kind of important because it it gave me time to reflect on all of the nine weeks mm. that I spent in North Korea. So. Um, actually, America wanted me to come back much quicker than that. And I said, hey, this was a humble punishment that they gave me. Let me uh, do my consequences. And so uh, it was it was a special time to kind of reflect on the time that I was in NK. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, shortly after or maybe around the, t- the exact time that you were released, uh, the uh, Korean-born uh, U.S. citizen Kim Dong-chul, who had been doing uh, some business in North Korea, uh, was accused of being a spy for the CIA, and he was arrested on uh, in October 2015. I don't know the exact date, uh, and he didn't get out until May tw- uh, 2018, just last year. So he spent almost two and a half years in uh, in prison. So you you are very fortunate. Yeah, yeah. I think he got detained about two weeks after my release, and um, it was sad to see that he he spent that much time there. But um, he did some pretty serious stuff that he regrets, um, and and I think made a lot of decisions that he wished he wouldn't have, and so. Um, it was it was reasonable, I guess, uh, for him to get the time that he did. But um, it was really awesome when they decided to release him. Now, how do you how do you compare your own case to that of uh, of poor Otto Warmbier, of course, who was uh, arrested on the second of January, uh, twenty sixteen, after a tour there, and uh, as we all know, he uh, passed away in, in June twenty seventeen after being sent back to America. Uh, sometimes I think about that and it makes me feel really guilty um, because of the difference uh, of our treatment. Obviously, it was just a, a very, very tragic uh, situation. Um, and, uh, you know, there's there's not really much that you can say about it. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's certainly very sad. I'm going to uh, we're going to pause there and uh, and come back with the third part of our interview. So, listeners, you'll have to wait until next week when the next episode is released to hear more from our guest today about uh, what happened afterwards and where things are going in the future. So, once again, check out our website nkshop.org. Thank you. Costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Uni Korea Fund, for which we are extremely grateful.